Today is the last message in the brief series on baptism, the four weeks we've been together on this topic. And I know that there is so much more to say than I've been able to say in these four messages, and I apologize if I have not addressed the particular angle on it that you had hoped I would. There will be more time that we can talk about this, and I'm certainly open to discussing it with anybody, privately or in a group setting. Remember, one of our main motives for this series was that as a staff last January, when we were praying about how to call for commitment and how to call for closing with Christ, it struck us that the New Testament way of going public with the inner working of God in your heart when the Word comes to you, the New Testament way was baptism. No doubt there were many other evidences that you had believed, but baptism was a clear one. At the end of the sermon in Acts 2, what should we do? We've heard the word, we're pricked, we're cut, we want to believe, we want to close with Christ and be united to Him. What should we do, Peter? And the answer was, repent and be baptized. That's what he said. And so, faith and repentance is the internal thing that happens as you cleave to Christ and turn away from sin. And then if you ask, well, outwardly, isn't there some ritual? Isn't there some way to demonstrate it before my family and in public? And the answer is, yes, there is. The Lord ordains that all who believe be baptized. And so we thought that we should more regularly in the life of our church, at the ends of services and however else, summon people To baptism. And then it struck us, well, we haven't taught on baptism for a long time. Scarcely at all. And so, the series of four messages. And hopefully this will carry us now and that as we, as we think in these terms and over months and years to come, summon people to faith and repentance and baptism, we will remember these words. Sometimes we ask, why Jesus did it this way? Why did he ordain that there be such a thing as baptism? And the New Testament does not answer that question. You can't find a sentence in the New Testament that says, the reason there are ordinances like the Lord's Supper and baptism is because this. What you find is meaning is given to them, Symbolic significance is poured into them, but why they were instituted in the first place isn't made perfectly clear. Now, experience, however, teaches lots of things. For example, after the first message three weeks ago, a woman who was a former missionary to the Philippines came up to me and she thanked me for doing this Series for getting started in this series because she said 
that when they were ministering in the Philippines, which you know is a, a heavily Roman Catholic country, and there's a lot of nominalism and a lot of syncretism, that is kind of an, an overlayer of Roman Catholicism and a lot of uh, other kind of religion underneath, so that when evangelism is done and people are quickened and awakened and brought to faith in Christ, she said, ordinarily that was no problem until the baptism. Family members were okay with, you want to think certain thoughts and have certain ideas in your head and in your heart, fine. But if you go public and you go in that water in the name of that Christ in that faith, then come the resistance. And so it raises the question, maybe therein lies one of the reasons that Jesus instituted baptism. It's a kind of drawing of a line in the sand in many cultures. What you think in your head is not nearly so important as whether it comes out in certain actions, including ritual actions. That same week, there arrived in the mail this magazine. It's the Dawn Report, Discipling a Whole Nation, D-A-W-N. And on page 7 here, there's a picture. You can't see it, but I'll hold it up anyway. Of a baptism in a missionary setting. Looks like India to me, just judging by the people. And under it is this caption. Outdoor services and river baptisms are sometimes the best vehicles for growth. Now, I don't think the New Testament mainly wants us to think of baptism as a church growth strategy. Neither do I think it's wrong to understand it as a powerful witness among friends and neighbors and the general public, which it is in many cultures and which we hope it to be at Bethlehem. In the months of July and August in particular, we hope to go to some lakes and some swimming pools and apartment places and neighborhoods and gather people around and sing and worship and baptize in those more public ways than just inside the building here. This is a baptismal pool that I'm standing on right here with these boards. So that's where we ordinarily do it. Well... It all boils down to whether we trust the Father in giving us wise instructions. If you say, I have to have a better reason for why there would be such a thing, I think we better just say, Jesus commanded it. There are many possible good effects of it. The Father has not stated which of them are the normative ones or the intended ones, and we should just joyfully Lovingly trust him. Tom Steller, downstairs just a few minutes ago, as we were praying for people at the end of this service, let me just announce ahead of time. This is the end of the series, and it's the end of this, we'll come to the end of this message, and I'm going to, in prayer, invite you who come to the Spirit-led conviction that God wants you to move ahead on this, to stand. And in that way, make a commitment that sometime this summer, say before September, you will move toward baptism. So know that that's coming. Don't want to take you off guard. Don't want to manipulate you in the 
mood of the moment at all. I believe God's been at work in these weeks and is at work this morning and that numbers of you are ready to say that is something I am ready to do. God has persuaded me. I believe that it's time to move ahead with baptism and I'll have you stand at the end of the service and then we'll pray for you and then we'll all stand and be dismissed. Tom Steller downstairs said that uh, his prayer, he prayed, let it be like my baptism when I was 17. He said, he used the word, it was so hedonistic. He said he couldn't imagine that anything could be better than to do what Christ had said to do. For surely the Christ who had saved him and loved him only asked to do things that were really good for him. And therefore, let it be that. Don't let it be a kind of, ooh, what will my hair look like? I mean, that's a terrible thing. That's not of God. That's not of God. That's of the flesh. To worry about those kinds of things. Ooh, what do the robes fit like? Or, ooh, my legs are white. I think about those things, and I just decided I'm not going to care anymore. I walk out barefooted with these robes on, and it's... I have a feeling that one of the reasons God ordained baptism is because it says, unless you turn and become like a child, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. And if you are still at the level of hair and fit and white legs, you got some spiritual work to do. Okay, that's what's coming. I have not addressed the issue of mode that is, whether we sprinkle or whether we immerse and why. This text this morning in Romans 5 and 6 um, bears upon that issue. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. Let me address it briefly here at the outset. My desire in Romans 5:20 to 6:4 is not primarily to argue for a mode, though I believe it does, My aim is to argue for a reality. I want you to feel the reality that baptism is portraying so that the reality is what grips us and then the emblem, like a wedding ring, will be precious. If the reality is precious, the emblem becomes precious. If the reality is ho-hum, the emblem is almost inexplicable. But the emblem has a shape to it, and in the Baptist conviction, it's immersion in water, not sprinkling in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three times, or pouring, effusion, on the head. Now, there are three kinds of reasons for that, and I'll just mention them, and then we'll move to the text. The first kind of reason is the meanings of the words. Baptizo is a Greek word. And it means dip or immerse. Second kind of reason. The descriptions of baptism in the New Testament seem to involve going down into water and coming up out of water. If you look at all the instances of baptism that give us any clue at all, Matthew 3, 6, in the Jordan he was baptizing. Matthew 3.16, Jesus went up out of the water. John 3.23, John was baptizing because there was much water there. Acts 8.38, Philip went down into 
the water. And the third, <clears throat> the third kind of reason is the symbolism that we'll look at in today's text of being buried with Christ in baptism and rising to walk in newness of life. That symbolism is lost on sprinkling. And it is the main biblical image of baptism. So I don't want to linger over this except to pose this question and do my best to answer it. It's not an easy one to answer, namely, but why why don't you just not dig in your heels on that and define membership at Bethlehem in such a way that you can welcome in people who've been sprinkled as believers. Don't you just loosen up as a Baptist General Conference and as a local church and not make that a, a defining issue for membership? Because to be a member at Bethlehem, our Constitution and our affirmation of faith says you have to be a, a baptized believer. And then it defines baptism as immersion in water. So those of you who have been sprinkled as believers, we're not talking about infant baptism here, can't be members until you are baptized, that is, immersed in water as believers. Now, let me give you two of my reflections on why the Baptist General Conference in Bethlehem have drawn a line around our covenant community like that. And let me clarify very, very plainly that to draw a circle around a local church and say these are the members and these are the non-members, we say loud and clear every covenant Sunday that is not a circle around the whole body of Christ. That's not a circle around all believers. We confess that there are many, many, many millions upon millions of believers who are not members of this church and who hold some non-essential views differently from ours who are believers and are part of the universal body of Christ and could not join our church and be covenant members here. Why? Why not draw the circle around all believers? Thought number one. Should we call a man-made method of baptism, namely sprinkling, baptism? Should we call it baptism? If we believe on good biblical evidence, and most scholars, even those who baptize infants and sprinkle, believe this, namely that it was the New Testament mode, immersion was the mode, and only later did sprinkling out of exigencies for weather or difficulties come in. Should we define baptism as anything other than what the New Testament portrays as baptism? And would this not minimize the significance that Christ himself gave to the ordinance? So I'm very hesitant. That if there's a uniform portrayal of baptism as immersion in the New Testament, to think that I, at any stage in church history, can just redefine it. I mean, that seems 
presumptuous to me, and then redefine it so that our membership is able to embrace that wider grouping. Here's the second thought. This one is more to the point, I think, as to what kinds of things you use to to define a community. Local Christian communities called churches are built around shared biblical convictions, some of which are essential to salvation and some of which are not essential to salvation. A good many, I don't know whether to say that, but several at least, let's say several, of the articles in our affirmation of faith are not essential to salvation. Nevertheless, we have chosen not to choose the minimalist approach. That is, you don't build a Christian community about how little you can believe together. You build a Christian community about common shared beliefs that seem appropriate at given seasons in church history in order to do two things, to bear witness to the importance of truth It's not to be played fast and loose with. Even the non-essential things are not to be treated lightly. And because we embrace as brothers those outside this local church to bear witness to love across that circle, that bound. In other words, I think that truth is served best and love is served best by meditating upon what you believe the Bible to teach, coming to firm convictions as God enables you, defining your community in terms of those convictions, and then loving those outside that circle manifestly. So love is served and truth is served by drawing those kinds of circles and loving across those kinds of lines. For example... We have a pastor's conference here every January, February, January. I didn't count them up. I was almost afraid to last night. But I would dare say most of the speakers I bring could not be members of this church. That strike you as odd. One of the reasons for that, not a main one, but one of the reasons for that is that I love these guys. I would die for them. I learn from them. And I'm still going to draw the circle of membership at baptism. At least until God changes my mind. In order to do two things, not just one thing. Namely to say, truth really matters. Conviction matters. Yes, we're fallible. But is the best way to confess love and fallibility to begin to so water down your convictions that pretty soon all that's left is one word of maybe Jesus is Lord and let that mean whatever it means and get worked out however you work it out? Say a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon? I think truth is served and love is served not by saying that nothing but the center matters, but by saying all biblical truth matters 
We're all in different places as we draw our circles. Bethlehem has historically decided to be a part of a group, the Baptist General Conference, that has drawn a circle like this. And there are things to be gained, and there are difficulties jostling around in a community like that. But my own conviction is that however we draw it, with our essentials and non-essentials, it's good to be strong and maintain conviction and then love across those various lines and find ways to manifest that love. Now let's go to the text. Romans chapter 5, verses 20 to 6, verse 4. The law came in that the transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore... We have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. Now, the great thing about baptism, according to this text, is that if you understand what it portrays, you understand what happened to you when you got saved. And that's a glorious thing to know. Many Christians do not know what happened to them when they became Christians. Do you know that? That's how generous I'm willing to be with how ignorant some Christians can be. We can be saved and not understand fully what happened to us when we got saved. It can be that simple. God is that merciful and gracious and slow to anger and coming our way and pitying us that a little mustard seed of understanding in genuine faith and you're saved, you're united with Christ. And then you've got a lifetime to grow in what it means. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are given to us to, to make us wake up to what happened to us. Now, what happened to you? If you get it, if you get what this is portraying, you will realize what happened to you. Some ask the question, I got the question several times already about rebaptism because you weren't sure what you were doing when you were 14. Twelve, eight. Here's my thought on this. It is good to be baptized when you're ignorant. Because baptism is put at the front end of your Christian life, and you're supposed to be ignorant at the front end. If you said that baptism is given only with significance on the basis of large theological knowledge, its whole meaning would have to be changed. You'd make it a ritual for death and not life at the beginning of your Christian walk. You've got to be ignorant when you get baptized. Well, that's an overstatement. But you get it. You get the point? If it's an initiating rite into the people of God, then expect that you don't understand a lot. Which means, five years later, under preaching and teaching and study, 
you're going to look back on it and say, I hardly knew anything. I've got to do this again. Now I understand. Don't do that. That's my counsel. We're not going to do that at Bethlehem. We're just not going to do that. If you were persuaded with a clear conscience that at 14 you were lying and you were not saved, then you should be baptized. But if it was a matter of small understanding, which now, having studied it and thought about it, is larger, and you wish you had known it then, that's okay. That's the way we all were. I was baptized when I was ten. There was a little mustard seed of understanding. Express my faith, make a public testimony, somehow it symbolizes death and resurrection. That's about it. And my dad baptized me at White Oak Baptist Church. So don't think that to grow in understanding of what happened to you and what it signified means you've got to go back and do it again because then you'd be doing it over and over again with every course in biblical theology that you took as your understanding increased. Now, very simply and briefly, in these verses, we'll only look at verses 3 and 4 of chapter 6, baptism portrays two things. And that's what I want you to get. And this is what happened to you when you believed. Number one, baptism portrays our death in the death of Christ. When you got saved, you died. Let's read verses 3 and the first part of verse 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism. So here's a great truth. If you're a Christian today, you became one by dying. You died. Now that means two things at least. Number one, it means that the person you are on this side of conversion is not the person you were on the other side because that person is dead. He died. The old, unbelieving, rebellious, self-asserting, do-it-my-own-way, trust-myself-get-out-of-my-way person died. That's what it means to become a Christian. And a second meaning on death is that the physical death that still lies in front of us has been phenomenally changed in the way we will experience it. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. He drank the tank, the stinger, the poison has been removed. And yes, there will be pain. The pneumonia will come. The cancer will spread eventually. The stroke will make the tongue wag. Dementia of various kinds will turn us into a little rag doll that shakes like this and we will die. 
and it will be an entrance into glory. No fear. No guilt. No condemnation. No alienation. Just intimate fellowship in the twinkling of an eye. When you died at the beginning of your Christian life, an old person died and your death was transformed into a portal to glory. But now notice the key words into three times in this verse three and four. Baptized into Christ Jesus. Baptized into his death. Verse four. Baptism into death. Those little words into are meant to signify what happened to you in conversion, namely a union with Christ. You went into Christ. You are somehow united with Christ. You are in Christ. He is in you. There's an interweaving of his life in your life and your death in his death. So what happened to him happened to you and what will happen to him will happen to you. You are one together with Christ. Now the question is, how do we experience that? That's a supernatural work of God. We don't make ourselves one with Christ. God miraculously, like a marriage, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Marriage is not the mere work of man, folks. That's why divorce is so dangerous. Marriage is the work of God. What God has joined. Now, that's what happened to you at conversion. God joined you to Christ. But what do you do? How do you experience this? Let me give you two parallel verses to answer that question. One is Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. There's my dying with Him. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. There's the death of the old unbelieving self. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. There's the answer. How do you experience union with Christ so that His death is your death? And He lives within you? Answer, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. The person who died was the unbelieving you. We're going to see in a moment that a person came alive. And that person was a believer who walks moment by moment trusting God. Faith is the means by which we enjoy and experience our union with Christ. Here's another parallel, one more. Colossians 2, 6 and 7. As you therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Notice the connection. There's a receiving. And now, you're in Him. He's in you. You're in Him. There's union. Walk in Him. Verse 7. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith. So, receiving Him at the beginning of verse 6 and faith at the end of verse 7 
are the experiential psychological means by which we enjoy and experience union with Christ, walking in Him. Now, if that's true, here's the key interpretation of chapter 6 of Romans, verse 3. I believe that when it says we are baptized into His death, Buried with him in baptism, it means this. Baptism expresses the faith in which we experience union with Christ. Baptism expresses the faith in which we experience union with Christ. Now I'm picking up on the three last messages. I'm banking a lot on those other messages to undergird that interpretation. But it'll come out more clearly as we move to the second portrayal, the last one, very briefly. Baptism, secondly, after portraying our death, portrays our newness of life in Christ. So let's read that, verse 4 again. We have been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father. Now, I went too fast over that, didn't I? In order that... As Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Nobody stays under the water. There's a symbolism here. You don't stay under the water. Death is not all that baptism is about. I would scare you all away. If I said death is the only thing baptism is about. So we put people under the water and we hold them there until they die. And that's good symbolism because when you get saved, you die. Well, that's not the whole story. The whole story is, and we rise to walk in newness of life. Now here, folks, is the major argument for the mode of immersion. I don't know what I would do with this text if I sprinkled people. You're buried with Christ in baptism. This is a beautiful, powerful portrayal of what it means to be buried with Him and to now, secondly, rise with Him to walk in newness of life. Colossians chapter 2. Let's go back two weeks. I want you to hear now the connection with faith. Here again, don't conclude from Romans 6, aha, see, it's the water that's doing the saving and the killing and the raising. Don't don't jump to that conclusion of a, a portrayal. Rather, let the whole message of Paul help us. Colossians 2.12. Utterly crucial text two weeks ago. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now notice, I said to you two weeks ago that what kept me a Baptist through three years of Reformed Seminary and three years of Lutheran University, 
what kept me a Baptist were the two words, through faith, in Colossians 2.12. And now I'm saying those two words in the context of being buried and rising come and fall on Romans 6 with an interpretation that keeps me from saying the water did the raising or the priest did the raising or the pastor. God does the raising through faith. You got new life when you were saved. God gave you new life. The old unbelieving rebellious self died. It was crucified with Christ And you were raised to walk in newness of life. Now finish the sentence from from Colossians 2.12. Raised to walk in newness of life through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now bring that back and find that word working in verse 4. It isn't there. What would be the corresponding thing? How was Jesus raised from the dead in Romans 6, 4? Through the what of the Father? The what? Glory. Isn't that amazing? Through the glory of the Father, He was raised. Colossians says, through the working of God. Put them together and it is the glorious work of God on Easter, is what He did to you. The same thing that God did to Christ on Easter with that glorious working to bring His Son back from the dead and install Him at the Father's right hand and give Him government over the universe and promise to bring Him back that glory with which He is coming is what raised you from the dead. That's why you need to know what happened to you. So you walk out of here this morning saying, Wow, I never knew that's what happened to me. I never knew the spiritual, supernatural realities that had taken place in my life when I had as a little 8-year-old or 6-year-old or 7-year-old or 14 or 17 or 37-year-old person that mustard seed of faith that united me to Christ like plugging into a generator that runs off of Niagara Falls. So I conclude, and I, I do conclude now, that baptism portrays two things. Let's do it here. This is where we walk in. We have crimson robes on. You can't see through them, I promise you, no matter how wet they get. And we go down in the water, and we stand here, and we say, Yes, He's my Lord. Yes, He's my Savior. Yes, I intend God helping me to follow Him. And then, like a helpless child, we are buried. And then we come up, and often they're singing when we come up. And then we walk out, and and uh, there are white robes waiting here, terry cloth, white robes. And they're put around us to signify the righteousness of Christ and walk downstairs to the changing room. Very simple. We make it as easy as we can. It means, Father, this is what you say, Father, and and this is what maybe you could just imagine saying right now. 
I am so thankful that you loved me and that you sent your son to die for me and you raised him from the dead to vindicate his atonement for my sin. And you have now killed mercifully my old rebellion. And that old self is nailed to the cross. And by faith I say yes to that act. And I embrace Him and I accept union with Him in my faith. And I am so glad that You have raised me from the dead. And I now by faith will walk in newness of life and I rejoice that you have given baptism as a way of portraying this phenomenally beautiful reality. Let's bow our heads for a moment. Now before I ask some of you to stand, I just want to make clear you know what I'm asking for. There are two, two, two groups, and really it's just one group because it's a matter of time. Some of you have been Christians for a long time and have not been baptized by immersion as believers. And you've been listening to me and you've been praying and maybe long before this series you've been dealing with this issue and God has now brought you to the point where you say this morning, yes, it's time. This summer's the time. And others of you who are, are new and you're just coming to faith, and you have heard and have felt yourself drawn to the Lord this morning and are putting your faith in Him now and believe that you should move ahead both with repentance and baptism. So really, if you stand in a moment, it will be simply saying, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ and I have come to the point where I would like to be baptized this summer. So if you're in that category, why don't you just seal it by standing this morning. Just stand wherever you are. And I'll pray for you in just a minute. And then we'll all stand and be dismissed. My intention is to be baptized this summer. Five? Any more? Father, I thank you for what you're doing. I'm sure there are others who are wrestling. And I just pray that it would be like Tom Steller said, a joyful thing, not a burdensome thing. It's a glorious thing. And so I pray that you would confirm the intention now that's been expressed here and that you would create it in more and more all through the summer. Let's stand together, all of us. And wherever you are on this now, please be in touch with us. Fill out that little thing, desire us to express faith, and walk through those two weeks of baptism, preparation, and then we'll just plan people for different Wednesdays through the summer, and we'll have a great time testifying together about our death and our resurrection. And now may the love of God the Father 
and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.